please, to the book of Amos, chapter 3. I do hope that you're getting a kind of an outline of the way this uh, book is divided. We gave you in chapter 1 and 2, eight vessels of wrath. And we had in chapter 1, and then the first verse of chapter 2, where there were six heathen nations round about Judah and Israel that were condemned. And we gave you the verses. In uh, the first chapter, it was verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, and then the first verse in chapter 2. And then we had Judah and Israel in chapter 2, verse 4, and verse uh, 6. So that was, that's eight different numbers of rebukes here. Each one of these beginning with, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. We explained what that meant, that it meant three transgressions, and then not four more, but the fourth one would tip the scale and cause God to determine judgment upon those particular nations. And if you remember, each one of these start with that word. You'll find that statement in each one of these verses that we pointed out. And now when we come to the third chapter, we finish the second chapter. Uh, chapters 3 through 6, we have another uh, outline that forms into a very natural setting. And it's three vocal words of warning. So I want you to look at three verses with me. In chapter 3, verse 1, notice it says, Hear this word. Now, let's just stop there. 4, verse 1. Amos says, Hear this word. 5 verse 1, he says, hear this word. Now, the, in the 5th chapter, it covers chapter 5 and 6. So, in uh, chapter 3, it's just hear this word, and it covers all the chapter, the 3rd chapter of this word of warning or prophetic speech or message that he gives to Israel. In chapter 4 verse 1, he says, hear this word, and it covers the fourth chapter, and then chapter 5, verse 1, hear this word, which covers chapter 5 and 6. So you see how naturally these things fall into place. Amos is very methodical in what he's doing here, and he has a very definite plan and outline. In fact, if you study commentaries, you'll find that almost all of them have to follow Amos's outline, and they may give it one word of title or another, but it still uh, has to do with the same verses and is broken up in the same way. In fact, some, instead of eight vessels of wrath in these first ones that we mentioned, say there's eight prophetic burdens, eight prophetic burdens. And in these three, we said three vocal words of warning in these chapters that we just pointed out, chapter three and four and five, uh, is called by some three prophetic speeches. So you have a, all of this natural division. Now, let me give you something under this natural division before we get into the subheadings as we teach it. And that is when they says, hear this word in chapter 3, verse 1. This is an approaching judgment. Approaching judgment. When you come to chapter 4, verse 1, hear this word. It's an accusation that's aggravated. Accusation aggravated. 5, verse 1 is a lamentation and plea. And that covers chapter 5 and 6. I'll repeat that for you. Hear this word in 3 verse 1 is approaching judgment. God is saying judgment is coming. Uh, 4 verse 1, when he says hear this word, 
we'll find this accusation aggravated. And we'll see the things that aggravate this accusation against Israel. And then 5 verse 1, we'll find a lamentation and plea. In fact, if you have your eyes open to 5 verse 1, it says this. Hear this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. And then he pleads with them to turn uh, to him. So it's a lamentation and plea. Now then, if any time you'd like to catch up on this outline that falls into a very natural uh, place, will you just let me know, and I will try to uh, give you the the uh, subject matter of this this outline so that you can determine what to do and uh, how you're to approach it. So, let's look at uh, Amos chapter 3, if you will. Now, this is the lesson we'll take tonight. <clears throat> and beyond those words that I've already given you, hear this word, and it's an approaching judgment. We will give you a lot of comments and a lot of details. We're going to find how, first of all, that Israel's judgment is deserved in this section of Scripture. We're talking about approaching judgment. And we will give you details in verse-by-verse study, as we always do. So look at 3, verse 1, and we'll take it in uh, detailed study. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, the first thing that we notice in verse 1 is that it's the whole family of Israel. The whole family. O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up. So when he says Israel here, and then he says the whole family, that would include Judah at this time. Remember, Judah and Israel were separate at this time. Because we found in 2 verse 4 where he says, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. So Judah and Israel, there were the ten tribes and the two tribes of Judah. Ten of Israel. Because the kingdom was divided. And uh, so when he says the whole family, in verse 1, look at that which I brought up from the land of Egypt, he's including all of them. In fact, if you turn to Exodus 19 and verse 6, let me read this verse for you. It says, and ye shall, Now, this is when he brought them up and out of Egypt. He says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. This was what Moses was commanded to speak to the children of Israel. I want you to drop back to, to verse 4. You have uh, Exodus 19 verse 4. He says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. But you're going to see, he said, Israel would be a peculiar treasure. And then he goes on to say that there'd be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Moses was commanded to speak all those words. To the children of Israel. So back, hold your place in Amos chapter 3. So when he addresses them and says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, that's Israel and Judah, which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, and he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now we see that they were a very privileged people. And he says, you only have I known. And he says, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. We need to learn some lessons from that. We already said that there's approaching judgment announced. But the lesson we need to learn is that 
They they had a, a great, wonderful relationship with the Lord because he had known them only. They were a very privileged people. And he says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Their responsibility flowed from their relationship to God. They had a very close relationship and therefore their they were very responsible. Their responsibility was very great because their relationship was very great. In other words, out of a great re, uh, relationship that we have, the greater the responsibility. You know, Jesus taught that in the Gospels. That the one that has the greater blessings, and he has the greater responsibility. So you and I as Christians, the greater our relationship with the Lord is, the more we study and learn the more, the closer we are in knowledge, in love, means that the more responsible we are in service. And so if we could get that in our minds to say, well, I love the Lord greatly. And I know the Lord loves me. And I know that I'm privileged to be in the church. And I'm privileged to have such a relationship, not only with Jesus, but with the church. And I'm able to call upon the Lord day or night. He's made me as a priest in His presence. And the Bible says that we are in the New Testament. Peter speaks of Believers as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, just as Israel was classified there. You find that in First Peter chapter two. Remember, we've gone on that before. He says, "You're a holy nation, you're a kingdom of priests." And so, if they had that privilege under the law and under the national uh, choice of the nation of Israel, and they were very close to Him as far as their relationship was concerned, and God said to them here in the through Amos, He says, "Therefore." I will punish you for all your iniquities. Then God holds us especially responsible because of our relationship. That's why you find when a person is a child of God, Christian, and they get out here and they go and do things that are not pleasing to God and God has to chasten them, chasten them for all their iniquities, all of our sins. Why? Because we get away from God. And there's people all over the country like that. People that are truly God's children. They're born again. They belong to the Lord. But then they go back to the world. They want to go back into Egypt, you know, like the children of Israel did. said, let us go back because when we were back in Egypt, we had the, the leeks and the garlics and the flesh pots and we had all the food we wanted and we were just doing real good. But they had forgotten about their taskmasters and their slavery and their bondage. And sometimes Christians forget the fact that they were in the bondage of sin and in the world and the devil had his hold on them. And they go back to that and they find out it's not as pleasant as they thought it would be. Remember in book, the book of Hosea when we studied about uh, this unfaithful wife uh, departing from her husband and, and, and God said, I will hedge up your way with thorns. I'm going to afflict you and I'm going to make a wall and a barrier where you can't go any fur- further. You, and I'll, you will be disappointed. You'll seek after your lovers and you shall not find them. And all the things that we taught about the fruit of backsliding, well, that's what happens to, to Christians as well as what happened to Israel here. And therefore, God said, you have an approaching judgment. He says that I will punish you for all your iniquities. So it shows us the importance of separation from the world. Fellowship is only possible on the ground of separation. Real fellowship with God is only possible for you and I on the ground of separation. You hear people talking about, you know, worldly things and uh, things of uh, the flesh and thinking they have fellowship with God. They really don't have any fellowship with God. I don't know if I dare bring it up or not. Something Sharon told me before service. Well, I guess it's just well. I already got your curiosity around. Haven't it? Down there 
at the track at the museum that's claiming that because a preacher come in with the other fellow there at the museum, and I hope I get my story at least a gist of it right, they prayed that Hubbard would get his extension of his gambling, the gaming license, and that, that if they hadn't prayed, he wouldn't have got the, that extension. That doesn't wash with me, you know. He might have got them. Anyway, but whether he did or didn't, it wasn't his, in, in, it wasn't God answering their prayer. They got the license all right. But see, God doesn't put his stamp of approval upon, on that kind of a thing. It's just like someone saying, God, I'm going to go out the end of the mountain, God, and I'm going to, to take my money and gamble there, and I'm going to pray that God will help me to win. Well, you may win. But it won't be because God helped you to win. It'll be because you just lucked out and you won. But you're going to have to pay for the way that you're not separated to God if you go out and do those things. See, God doesn't put His approval upon a lot of things people think they do. And certainly He doesn't uh, on you and I when we get in the... What we said is true fellowship is only possible on the ground of separation. So if you claim you have fellowship with God, you're not out here in the world living for the devil. You're not having fellowship with God. You're having fellowship with the world and the flesh and the devil. So let's get our story straight. And that's what the Bible teaches. God will not bless that kind of an activity. So let's keep our minds on what the Bible says here. If you'll notice verse 3, it says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? God is a holy God. If we're going to walk with God, we have to walk in the light of His Word in fellowship with Him, and it is certainly on the ground of separation from the world. And the Bible says to Christians, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will be to you a father, and you'll be my sons and daughters. You'll be like my children. And He tells us not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He tells us to be a separate, separate people. And so, when you come to verse 3, it says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, you think God is going to condescend to walk to our human and ungodly ways? God says in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, in fact, uh, there are scriptures, and He says, This is the way, walk ye in it. And He points out that it's His way and not our way. He says, My ways are above your ways, are not like your ways. And my thoughts are not like your thoughts. Well, I know we got a lot of professing things in this world today. You know, even the, the wicked people that we have war against profess to be a very dedicated and religious people. But you see what comes of it. They're willing to blow up hundreds and thousands of people at one, in one act and kill whoever they can get their sights upon in the name of being faithful to their God. But we don't do that. A Christian is not to fight that kind of a warfare. Paul says that our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down every imagination, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We don't have carnal weapons. We have spiritual weapons. And any time a Christian seeks to use carnal weapons, remember when uh, Peter took the sword and cut off the servant the ear of the servant of the high priest and Jesus healed it what did he say he rebuked him for it and he says they that take the sword shall perish by the sword and how true it is when you take your arms out you're going to have to suffer the consequences because someone else is going to have arms that are stronger you've got a 22 they'll have a 30 32 you have a 32 they'll have a machine gun you have a machine gun, they'll have a bomb. You have one bomb or missile of one kind, they'll have one bigger. It's not the way we fight our battles. It's not, not the way the Christian is to fight their battles. I'm not saying you should not defend yourself in case you're attacked by someone and do your best to preserve your life and the life of your family because that's a natural thing that men are, and people are responsible for. There is such a thing as self-defense. 
But on the other hand, we're talking about here separation to God. Can two walk together except they be agreed? So a holy God is not going to walk with an ungodly people in their ungodly ways. He's just not going to walk with them. That's not his way of doing it. Now then, I want you to notice that the punishments is announced now. We see a privileged people. Notice punishment is announced. And we're not going to hurry our way through these uh, three sermons that Amos gives in chapter 3, 4, and 5, and 6. There are three. Beginning with that word here, this word. And so, we're not going to rush through them. I want you to get as much as you can out of them. But notice here in verse 4. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? This is their punishment that's announced. And he uses several questions here. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he hath taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is or no trap for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth? And have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not afraid? Shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? The evil there means calamity or judgment. And all of these things were given, these questions were asked by Amos, to cause the people to fear and to tremble tremble and realize that punishment is being announced upon them. In other words, look at this verse 4 again. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? It's indicating that God has, uh, like a lion, roared out His judgment. And there certainly is a prey, and Israel is the prey. And look, will a young lion cry out of his den if he hath taken nothing? That they're going to be the ones that's the subject of this uh, judgment that is about to come. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Think of this. Like a roaring lion, the Lord would come upon them in the judgment that they had announced, that was announced, that he would uh, do. And all these things show that very thing. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city? Look at verse 6. And the people not be afraid. If the alarm is sounded, the trumpet is sounded, the trumpet of warning that the enemy is approaching, will not the people be afraid? And then it says, Shall there be evil in the city? And the Lord hath not done it. Some people have taken this completely out of the context to say that God is the author of evil. He's not the author of evil. The word here has relation... Uh, uh, reference to a calamity coming in the city as a result of God's judgment. In other words, evil on Sodom and Gomorrah or calamity or terrible judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's from that sense of the word that this word evil is, is spoken of and why that some commentators would take this word evil and try to make it as if God was the author of, of sin or evil. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the calamity that is about to come. Now then, when you get down to verse... Seven. It says, Surely the Lord will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants, the prophets. In the Old Testament days, God revealed His secrets of whatever they may have been, and for whatever purpose, whether it was blessings or judgment, to the prophets, sometimes in vision, sometimes in dreams, sometimes in other ways. But most of all, through His Word that He had given. And here, when we're talking about, Surely uh, the Lord will do nothing, but... Uh, he revealed his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now the prophetic, now his secrets are made known through the prophetic word. So we know that when God gives us His word, that something's going to happen. It's going to happen, and it's not for us to dream it up and think that we know because we had a vision or a dream. If God wants us to know something that He's going to do, He's given it to us in His word. You have people say, "Well, I had, I had this vision. I had this dream." Well. Let's see. Turn to the book of Jeremiah 23. Look in Jeremiah chapter 23. Verse 25. Well, let's read verse uh, 21 and then drop down to verse 25. 
Verse 21 says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. You have Jeremiah 23 now, verse 21. God says, I have not sent them. And He says, yet they ran, and I have uh, not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Now on down, let's, to, to save time, and I should read it all, but let's drop to 25. I have heard what the prophet said, that prophesy lies, what? In my name. In my name. Now look. Saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. But they're prophesying lies, what? In my name. And then they say, How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. Because they had a dream. Now look at this. Verse 27. Which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams which they tell every man unto his, to his neighbor as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. He's talking about false prophets. And yet they do it in what? In his name. Now look at this. Verse 28. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff, that's the dream, to the wheat, saith the Lord. Now look at verse 29. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith. They use their tongues and say what? He saith. From the basis of their dream. And they say, He saith. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their likeness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. And so on and so forth. The whole passage of Scripture. Back to the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. We said in some instances, and even in the Old Testament, we know that Moses and, and Abraham and various ones, God spoke in, to them in special ways. In fact, if we read over in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, listen, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. So he said in the last days, and since Christ's time, he's spoken to us through Christ. And we know that the Bible teaches that we have God's full revelation, his word. Let's look at this, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So Amos was as much as saying that God was not going to bring this judgment because until he had shown him that he was going to bring this judgment. And evidently, since Amos was pronouncing this judgment, hear this word, verse 1, that God had spoken to him to bring this message of judgment. And so he knew what God was up to. He knew what God wanted. He knew what God was doing and would do. Now look at verse... uh, Eight. It says, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? That roaring of the lion was that the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Who can but boldly proclaim the word of the Lord if he's given the warning? Is what Amos is saying. Now then, he's going to take up with verse 9 and 10 and explain this punishment that is coming. Verse 9 and 10. And let's notice how this punishment is explained. He says, Publish in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces... Uh, in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumults, 
in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Let's stop there for a moment. What's he saying? He says, his people didn't know how to do right. And he says in verse 9, publish in the palaces at Ashdod. Ashdod is one of these Philistia back in uh, chapter 1 that was uh, spoken against. If you notice in uh, verse 8, it says, I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, chapter 1, verse 8, and him that holdeth the scepter from Ashkelon, and I will turn mine uh, hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines. So it's Philistia that's in view. So he's calling Philistia to understand and see what's happening. God had already pronounced judgment upon them, hadn't he? And now he wants them to behold. He wants the heathen nations, even Egypt is mentioned here. He wants both of them to realize. He says, I want you to come, uh, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. He wants them to see what God's judgment is like upon His own people. Isn't that an amazing thing? That He would call them to behold it? He says, Philistia and Egypt, you assemble yourselves and see what God's going to do there in Samaria to, to Israel. And the reason why, for they know not to do, uh, to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. He wants them to understand and know what's going to happen. Verse 11. Verses 11 through 15 describes Israel's judgment. The form of judgment that will take place. And this punishment that's coming to them, verses 11 through 15, is explained. Punishment explained. Verse 11. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, An adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. God is going to bring an adversary against them. You know, God many times used heathen nations round about Israel to bring judgment upon them. And that's what he's saying here. Look at this again. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land. This is the form that the punishment will take. And he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. And then he says in verse 12, I want you to notice verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the, the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. They were living in their luxury and their ease. But he says, there would be only a small piece of them left. You know, if you were to retrieve out of the mouth of the lion a a part of the animal that was, was attacked, that would be proof that the whole animal was killed. In fact, they were required to bring... It says here... Uh, two legs or a piece of an ear, a portion of the animal that was devoured. So, there would only be a portion of Israel that would be taken out of this destruction that would devour them. A remnant, we call it. Just a remnant would be saved. And that's what he's saying. Only a small remnant would escape this judgment that God said was coming. I want you to notice verse uh, 13 now. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts. That in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Let's stop there for a moment. He's saying that when this day of judgment comes, verse 13, Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in that day 
In the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. What's he saying? This was the center of Israel's idolatry. Remember, they set up one of their calves in, in uh, Bethel and one in Dan. We said earlier, the northern kingdom and the southern part of the kingdom. And in Bethel, this is where, uh, this is what uh, Amos was prophesying against, against the children of Israel, who had their calf in idolatrous worship, calf worship. And so wh- when he says that when I bring this transgression and visit the transgression of Israel upon him, I'm also going to visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off. In other words, he would destroy their ability to worship their idols, their golden calf. He would destroy not only the place of worship, but the means of worship. See, God hates idolatry. And because they had set it up, and thought they could get by with it, they'd gotten by with it for year after year. God said, I'm tired of it, and I'm fed up with it. Remember back in when he gave Moses the commandments, he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. And of course, immediately they, in, in the book of Exodus, when, they, uh, when Moses had received the Ten Commandments, they'd broken them before he got down off of the mountain. If you remember, old Aaron had gotten with the people, the people got with him, and he had made the golden calf to worship. He says, These be thy gods, O Israel, that... They brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And Moses came down off of the mountain. He saw the party they were having. And they were dancing and they were just having a high-heeled time as well as having a lewd uh, time of, of uh, sexual things that were going on in the midst of all their joy and, and the things that they were doing. And God, God said through Moses, You've broken my commandments. Moses comes down, he understands, he says, the people have rebelled against you. And he breaks these commandments, he throws them down and breaks them into pieces. He says, what he was saying is, Israel, you've already, before I've gotten down off the mountain, you've already broken God's laws. You've already broken all of his laws. So he just threw them down and broke them all to pieces. Then he goes down and he gets that golden calf that they've made. And he grinds it into powder, straws it upon the water, and makes them the drink of the dregs of their idolatry. You see, whatever sins you commit, you're going to have to drink of the same. And that's what Moses was doing. Then later on, after all this was said and done, and in the days of Jeroboam, he made the golden calves that we find here spoken of in Bethel and in Dan. And so God is sick of them doing this. Remember, he set up his idolatrous worship. Look back in 1 Kings chapter 12. Look at it. 1 Kings chapter 12. Look at, we'll just try to hurry as quickly as we can. Verse 26, 1 Kings 12, 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again to their Lord, even to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. So Jeroboam says, if, if, I, if they go to Jerusalem to worship, I'm going to lose power over the kingdom. Jeroboam. Now notice. Whereupon the king, this Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. So he said, I'm going to make it easy for the people and I'll maintain control, political control in a religious uh, atmosphere. He wanted to maintain his position. And he says, I'm going to make it easy. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of, up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, Look, that's what we're studying over in the book of Amos, right? 
He set one of the calves in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. God had said only the sons of Levi would be the priests. And Jeroboam ordained the feast. All this is false religion, man-made religion. He ordained the feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month. God didn't have any feasts on that day. And it says, like unto the feast that is in Judah. He made it like that, but it was not one. And he says, and he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month. Look, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart. Jeroboam set up this worship. And Amos says, when God visits Israel with judgment, what did he say? says he's going to destroy. Back in Amos, hold your place where we're studying. We're about to conclude. Back in Amos chapter 3, verse 14. He says, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. In other words, Israel's idolatry would be destroyed. And in verse 15, we'll read this in closing. And I will smite the winter houses and with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. In other words, a total destruction of all their uh, many places of abode, their houses where they had winter houses and summer houses and palaces and they were living in luxury and in plenty. And God said, I'm going to make it a total uh, desolation. You see, when God judges His people, He means business. And He did for Israel. Do you think that we, in this day and hour, deserve not to have God's chastening hand upon us when we do wrong? And He says, because of our privileges, that verse we said in verse 2 says, you only have unknown of all the uh, families of the earth. And he says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. I will punish you for all your iniquities. Because we have great privileges, we have great responsibility. And the more we know, and the more enlightened, the more responsible we become. Someone says, then I don't want to know anything. Well, knowledge and a relationship with God is is great. But then when we abuse that relationship, it deserves what we have coming. So let's make sure as Christians that we learn to live close to God. And when we find ourselves doing things or going places or or out of uh, the fellowship with God, we know something's wrong. And we know therefore that, that we're going to have to suffer for it. The Bible says that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Thank you for your patience, please.